Morning, everybody. Hopefully you can hear me. Well, hey, uh, just encouragement. My, my eyes were drawn to Isaiah 40, verse 30, for the youth leaders uh, as you go away. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Just to encourage you, there will be a point where the youth will get tired at some point, and you'll get a good night's sleep. Even the youths grow tired and weary. Praise the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Matthew. We'll be preaching from John chapter 7 this morning. And uh, the title of the message, well, it's to anticipate a collision with the world in which we live in. Let's anticipate a collision. Um, I'm going to read John chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and then 37 to 44. So please join with me if you have a Bible in front of you. So just before we read it, a bit of context. So John... Hosea, just don't get confused, uh, he preached from John chapter 6 last week. And so we're picking up here around about six months after Jesus declaring to the world that he is the bread of life. This is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, so it can be dated around mid-October. And so we know it's about six months after. So we pick it up here. After this, so after Jesus declaring that he is the bread of life, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there, notice the there, may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Leadership 101, right? Show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. And listen to this bit. We're going to focus on this bit. The world, Jesus says to his brothers, cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also. Not publicly, but in secret. Not publicly, but in secret. And let's go down to verse 37. On the last day of the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. That's the end of reading God's word. Um, In 1998, one of the greatest films of the 90s came out on June 1st, The Truman Show. Anybody see that? Yes, fantastic. That's helpful because if you hadn't, this introduction will fall flat on its face. So we're off to a good start. The Truman Show, 1st June 1998, a show about Truman Burbank living in a reality 
TV world, so to speak. He lived in this world that was created just for him, a manufactured stage with actors and actresses and props all geared around Truman Burbank, filming his every move. And he was unaware of this. He didn't know this was going on until the 30th anniversary of the show, or his 30th year in life. Truman begins to notice some unusual occurrences around him. He notices a spotlight falling from the sky, which is a bit odd. He doesn't know that it's all fake. He notices a radio channel precisely describing his every movement as actors and actresses try to get into position. The reappearance of his father, who passed away in a tragic storm incident um, earlier in his life. What he begins to do is he begins to question the reality of his very existence. He somehow starts to realize that this whole manufactured world is created just for him. And it starts to bring about questions. His internal conscience, his internal compass, his adventurous spirit starts to collide within the world in which he is living in. He gets on a boat, he goes sailing, he gets caught up in a storm, he gets drenched, thrown overboard, back in. But through the waters, he finds himself at the end of the set as the boat crashes in. He looks around and he discovers an exit door and he starts to gingerly walk up. And as he's doing that, Christoph, the director of the show, starts to speak to him through the speaker system for the first time, encouraging him to stay within the manufactured world in which he's been brought up. Because there is no more truth out there than there is in here, were his words. He has nothing to fear in here, but he could do if he walks through the exit door. And what's really interesting about the film, especially in this scene, is that Truman's bravery and his courage, his willingness to collide with what's dictated around him, ultimately sees him freed through the waters, and it's remarkable. And what we see here in John chapter 7 is something very similar. We see this collision. And so my first point this morning is this. If we are a Christian, we are to anticipate a collision within the world in which we live. And the way through that collision to get out to the other side, or sorry, just to rewind, we're to anticipate the collision. We anticipate the collision because of the world's way of thinking that's been manufactured around us. We will understand what, I, what we mean by the word world, and then we'll go on to the end to see that through courage, we can get through the other side of the collision by living waters. Nice and simple. Right. So the first thing is we are to anticipate a collision with culture. In verses 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Folks, I'm going to get straight into it this morning. No beating around the bush. Proper northern talk, right? If there is no collision between the church and the world, then there is something wrong. Because by default, there should be a head-on collision. If the church is trying to bring about peace in the world in which we live in, then we will be persecuted for that. Have you noticed in the Beatitudes where it said, blessed are the peacemakers on one hand, but blessed are those who are persecuted? They're not two different sets of people. It's the same group of persons. If we are to be a people to bring about peace, we're going to have what Jesus had, which was war. The Prince of Peace bringing about salvation to the world got what? Thorns? He was speared and he was on a cross. 
But what about all the voices pushing for the church to change its stance on objective truths right now? About our truths on sexuality, how we are to structure ourselves in terms of eldership. How we're to perhaps start to marry same-sex couples in our buildings. Surely the church needs to catch up with the times. But listen, that would be like calling up the RSPB, you know, the uh, nature reserve. They they look after Arne and lots of other uh, land across Dorset and in the country. You know, if you go onto their website, the vision for the RSPB is this. Our work is diverse and comes in many forms. From species recovery and large-scale conservation to policy influence and inspiring change in action. Imagine if you called up the RSPB and said, get with the times. We need more housing in Dorset. We need to give up conservation area for new houses. You know, the animals need to put to one side now because the population is so vast. What are you going to, what are they going to, and they turn to you and they say, no, that's not our vision. That's not our mission. They will be persecuted by those who think we should use that land for homes. What's the job of the church? To cheer on market trends? To jump on the ever-changing landscape of subjective truths? To be tossed by the culture as a boat in water? Or is the role of the church to stand up for humanity? To stand up for objective truth? Folks, we must understand the mission of the church You see, Jesus was against the world for the world. He was against the world for the world. If you and I are to love the world even in one iota, as fearlessly as Christ loved the world, then we would expect controversy. We will expect some sort of persecution. Are we called to be fashionable? No. We're called to stand up for something that's objective and right. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says to his brothers, but it must hate me. Why? It's a good question. Why? Well, folks, I would say to us here that we must anticipate a collision because of the world's way of thinking. We must anticipate a collision because of the world's way of thinking. What's interesting here is Jesus turns around to his brothers, and by brothers here, we actually they believe it's his biological brothers, and the text goes on to say that these brothers weren't yet followers of Jesus. They didn't believe in him yet. But Jesus turns to his brothers and says, listen, guys, I don't play, I don't act or lead in the way the world defines leadership. I don't play the world's games. You see, they're urging Jesus to go up to Jerusalem to take charge of, a, of, 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 a, of the revolt, to bring about a liberation through a movement that would be seen by all. You see, up until this point, all of Jesus' reported healings happened (coughs) were in Galilee, with only one reported healing in Jerusalem, and that was in John chapter 5. That was the healing of the impotent man. And that miracle, to be honest, was probably more bound up in Jesus doing that work on the Sabbath rather than the healing itself. And that's why they wanted to kill him. And so what the brothers spot, they spot a, there's a gap in the Jerusalem market. Go up to Jerusalem. Let's do some healing. There's a niche market there. You know, let's go up there. There's a gap. But Jesus says, my time is not yet come. You know, we know this, don't we? If you want to be a leader today, if you want to be an influencer, I know this temptation. 
within our business. You know, we've got to get a good social media platform. Let's grow our followers. Let's have the right, let's have the right image. Let's look the right way. Let's say the right things. Let's go to the right niche parts of the market. Let's go and take charge. Leadership 101. Jesus says, no, my time's not yet. And even if I do go, I'm going to go secretly. I'm not going to go publicly. But what we must be really important to understand here, church, is when Jesus says the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, what do we mean by the world? Because that can be quite confusing, right? Because in John chapter 12, the same gospel, it's reported that Jesus says, I came to save the world. The most famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But the same John writes in 1 John 2, love not the world, nor the things of the world. Paul writes in Romans that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So is this a contradiction? No, because we must understand the world has two meanings when we read scriptures. And the first meaning, when we read the word or the term world, we're talking about the material universe. We talk about the world in which we live, the physical world that God created right back in Genesis and declared it was good. And what God creates in Scripture is good. No created thing is unclean. The only way it is defiled is is by the way in which we use it. But the second way in which the word world is used is to talk about the spirit of the world. A a system of thinking where the material world in which we live in is an end in itself. The spirit of the world. You may have heard this in the word secular. Have you heard of the word secular or secularism? This, we've talked about this. Is there a sacred and secular divide? Well, secularism or the world in which we live, the, the root of the word is basically time or timeism or, or nowism, if you will. And what secularism is stating is that now is all that matters. You see, for the secular, they don't just enjoy the material world for what it is and it's greater good. They enjoy it for what it is now because in and of itself, it is an end in itself. Secularism is all about the now. The spirit of the world is all about now. We see this in our changing uh, media this week, haven't we? We've gone from global warming to global boiling. Have you read that? It's all about the now. We've got like now. We're going into a time of general election, aren't we? Probably in the next 12 months. And all the manifestos are going to come out about our economics, sorting it out now. Let's sort out immigration now. Let's sort out education now. Let's do it. We've got to do it now because there is no context of eternity. The non-Christian says the real world right here and now is all that matters. And that's why you fight up the pole for your career. That's why we're willing to walk and trample over people to get promotions. That's why money is so important to us. Because if now is all that matters then it is survival of the fittest. And if you are weak, well, I'm so sorry, you're going to get eaten up, and that's just the way things go. But the Christian sees things very differently. The Christian sees things in in time and space of eternity, that now is just a foreshadow of something greater to come. And yes, we steward and we look after the things now, but we we don't see it in a secular 
point, from a secular point of view, that now is all that matters. <clears throat> Again, if now is all that matters, if this world is all that there is, then it's merely the people that have the biggest budgets, the biggest influence, or the strongest emotional feelings that dictate how things go and which moral values are most important, right? And as I've been thinking about this this week, I'm trying to think about what would be the best example to demonstrate nowism, timeism, secularism in its best form. You probably know it. Who more than anyone wants something right now? Who cannot wait until the next day? Who wants a snack immediately and they will cry their eyes out if they don't get one? Who kicks and screams if they don't get their own way? Children. Children, you know, one of the greatest lessons of a parent is to teach a child not to blow their time, not to blow their money, not to blow all their energies in the moment, but to wait. <clears throat> I'm at that age now where if I book something in and it's in a month from now, I'm like, okay, that's probably going to happen pretty quickly. I remember when I was a child, a month from now, what? No, that's forever. I want it today. Childishness. You know, one of the biblical worlds for worldliness <clears throat> is profane or profanity. Very quick example back in the Old Testament of Esau, who exchanged his birthright for a meal, for some stew. For Esau, what's the point of having a birthright if I'm hungry? I want to eat now. And so I'll exchange my birthright for some food. In the Bible's language, Esau was profane. He was childish. And it is my personal conviction, and I'm happy for you to disagree with me at the end. Just don't throw any of those figs that have been brought in at me during the sermon. Wait to the end. It is my personal conviction that our nation suffers from cosmic childishness. We are a nation that is that we, we have a cosmic childishness rife amongst our population. We want economic growth now. We want mortgage rates down now. We want to sort out immigration crisis today. We want, to get, we want to get rid of the head of Coots Bank and the head of NatWest Bank in the moment because they made a mistake. If my football team is not performing, I want that coach gone right away. If I want to buy something and I don't have the money, it doesn't matter because I'll get a credit card because I deserve it now. Honestly, I have spoken to people in my office, in our business, that they have been with us for less than six months and they are knocking at my door for a promotion. It's remarkable. I want that promotion now. It's remarkable. Cosmic childishness. We see it in the church too, don't we? That in our hearts, we may trust that God is good and we love him. But this worldliness has infected our thinking. We want Christian maturity straight away. I'm not willing to go through the trials of life, potentially. We want everything in the moment. Maybe God's calling us this morning to perhaps some patience. You know, the Christian believes or reminded this morning that, folks, now is not all that matters that it is a good thing to delay gratification, to die to your urges, to see things in the light of a billion years from now and the consequences of those decisions. Everything, this building, everything will be burnt up 
at one point in time. But you and I won't. Spending our money and time and resources in each other is an eternity project. It's a beautiful thing. Folks, the Christian this morning can live life with certainty because even though some of the battles that we are facing today feels like we're losing, the war is ultimately won. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, if everything is like a window, you see through everything and you have nothing to hold on to. Well, I would say to you that worldliness is like a window. If you are ultimately here this morning living for the spirit of this world, it's like seeing everything through a window. You've got nothing to hold on to. And that's why you are discontent, disillusioned, frustrated, and angry because you're holding on to nothing. There's nothing to grapple onto. But in Christ, what we see is if we see through, if we are in the world but not of the world, we see through the window. We see the spirit of the world. We understand it. We collide with it. But ultimately, beyond the vision, beyond the window, is something to hold onto, and that's Christ. That's our rock. And that's a wonderful thing. His mercies, his grace, his forgiveness, his kindness, his generosity. And folks, do you want to hold on to that this morning? We want to look through the window. We want to see Christ. If you and I start to live an eternity-based, if we have them an eternity-based mindset and live in that way, then I am, with sobriety, I tell you this morning, the world will hate you. The world doesn't want integrity in the workplace. The world doesn't want self-sacrifice. I have to fight every month in my business to put the words, we're happy to serve you on our website. Because we don't serve people. We are, people are to serve us. I had a collision in my senior management meeting this week about, about having rest. Does anyone here get anxiety when it comes up to annual leave? Yeah? I'm so anxious about taking two weeks off. How's the business going to cope without me? It's going to completely fall apart, you know. And I'm, and I'm joking, but there's a, that's real, you know. I've got to take two weeks off, but that's got to happen. I feel anxious stepping away and trusting God because I'm so caught up with, the, with our income and our monthly successes that I need to be around to deliver that. And we had a senior management meeting this week, and they said, well, Matthew, I said, I really want to take two weeks off when I want to rest, but Matthew, I'm not quite sure that's right and proper when you have the sort of job you have, I think you kind of need to be switched on all the time. Nowism! How do you fight with that? Well, we had a collision in the meeting. Because if I'm going to stand up for what's right, then I have to collide with the culture. Because folks, my, my brothers and sisters, well, those made in the image of God who are not yet brothers and sisters in Christ have nothing to hold on to. So the now is really important. Folks, the first point is this. Anticipate a collision with the culture. Second point, very quickly though, we can take courage through living waters that we have all that we need to do so. In verses 37 and 39, I'll read it again here for you. Something remarkable happens. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Not cisterns of still water growing with bacteria that you shouldn't drink. You know, not a pond that rivers of living water. You know, Jesus did not attend the festival as he knew people were at the feast looking to seize him and kill him. Yet on the last day he goes, well, he's there before the last day, but on the last day he gets up and he says in a loud voice, other translations, as he cries out, I've got something to tell you. Like, I, I want to tell you this. He's not, you know, he's not shy. I want to tell you this. It's something really important. Just, and just very quickly here, why this day is important, because during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the Feast of Booths, they would have gone through certain rituals over the seven, eight-day um, festival. I mean, this is like the Glastonbury of religious festivals, right? I mean, this is it. Anyone of anyone is at the, is at the Festival of Booths, you know. So much so that it was a legal requirement for men of a certain age with a, with a five to ten-mile radius to attend it. Everyone flocked to it. The Glastonbury religious festivals. And Jesus gets up on the pyramid stage on the final day. The mics are booming and he starts talking. If you want living waters, come and get it. And the reason why this was, would have had significance to them is because every day at the festival, the priest would have gone to the pool of Siloam, which we read about in John chapter 5, to draw water from this golden pitcher. He would then walk back to the festival in procession with other people, and they would be singing together Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would keep singing that, and they would pour it out on the altar. And on the final day, as Jesus is watching this, he looks at it and he says, Do you want some of the real stuff? Do you want the real water? from which the wells of salvation will eternally come from. Now, when Jesus talks about the water, he's almost saying here because he's reverting back to something that happened in Exodus, and I'll come on to that in just a moment. He's saying, do you want the real water? Do you want the real rock? Come to me. Now listen, what he's, don't misunderstand Christianity. Christianity, if you're new this morning, is it a pattern of behavior? Is it a set of doctrinal beliefs, the doctrinal truths to believe in? Is it a new vision for the world? Well, yes, but primarily, beyond all of that, Christianity is something much more. It's direct experience with God. It's His Spirit penetrating ours. And that's what biblical revelation is. A very connection to the lifeblood of God. A little bit like Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort, connected through their blood. Folks, in a greater sense, like we are with Christ, connected of the same source and substance. Which is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1, that we are partakers of the divine nature, of his divine nature. His divine nature penetrates us. Do you think you're feeble this morning? Do you think you're weak? You have no concept of the living God inside of you. Do you think you haven't got what it takes to face the trials of your marriage, to push through your university degree, to finish high school well, to parent in the way that you want to parent, to stand full of integrity in your workplace? You have forgotten of the great thing that's inside of you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This water, a symbol of the Holy Spirit living inside of you and living inside of me. 
And very quickly, it's important to note here that this was procured ultimately through Jesus being struck. Exodus 17, we have this image of the rock, and this is where we get this from. This is why they celebrate. This is why this ritual was happening at, the, at, this, at this, uh, uh, this Glastonbury event, so to speak. You see, God had been providing and took care of the people in the Old Testament in Exodus 17 as people were wandering before the promised land. And there was a one particular point that the people got really thirsty and they wanted a drink now. They, need, they were thirsty now. They turned to Moses and said, we don't like the way you're managing our lives, Moses. We don't like it. And they got mad at God. And, and as often people do, when you get mad at God, you try and kill somebody else. So they tried to kill Moses. They wanted to kill him because they were accusing him of mismanagement. God comes to Moses and says, take the elders, take the rod, and go to this rock. Take the elders, take the rod, and go to this rock. Because you see, at this point, the people wanted to execute Moses, and God wanted to execute the people. And so they come together, the elders standing as witnesses, the rod is there, and the rod in this is a symbol, it's a metaphor, as it always is in the Old Testament, of God's punishment and judgment. But when we get to the rock, something remarkable happens. Moses isn't killed. The people aren't consumed. Instead, Jesus, instead, God says to the people, I will stand before Moses. I will stand before the people. Take the rod and strike the rock. Hit the rock? Really? The sacred rock that no one's allowed to see? The rock where the presence of God dwells? Moses lifts the rod and water comes out. Do we see what God is saying? Folks, you and I are like the Israelites. That this morning we are all guilty. That whilst we, are, whilst we love Christ and live in this world, the spirit of this world does affect our thinking, right? Let's be honest. We're thirsty now. We want it now. We need it now. But in Christ... Our rock, who was struck in our place, takes on himself that spirit of this world and he gives us something greater, living waters, the Holy Spirit. And you know the word Christian is, means little Christ or like Christ so that living waters won't come out of Christ and into us and they will, it will stick in us and be, and be stuck in us. No, no, no. That like Christ, living waters will flow out of us. So as we stand on the rock of Christ, we become like little rocks in our culture, in our communities, in our workplaces, so that his spirit that's in us will flow out of us into where God has called us. And we become like, follow me as I follow Christ, Paul says, doesn't he? That we can call people in our, in our culture, in our sphere, to say, follow me as I follow this Jesus. We can become like little rocks. We can save the people that we know from the BMW Club. Have you heard of that? The BMW Club. This is old school evangelistic acronym, right? The blamers, the moaners, and the whingers, yeah? The BMW Club. We're all part of that club at some point. That we, like little rocks, can save people from the club. 
because we can show them something greater than the secularistic worldview. There is something better. And listen, folks, you don't have to ask too many questions to understand the discontentment of us culture and society. You don't have to spend too much time with someone who doesn't follow Jesus to understand about their struggles and frustrations. You know, Adam Carrier came up a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember the story he told about being stuck in the desert? A story only Adam Carrier, an ex-Marine, can tell. Stuck in the desert with no water, and they had three days to get back to base. And they thought they were going to get rescued on the first night, and so they, they drank all their water. <laughs> and so they had no water for the next two days. And had to get through the Sahara Desert, wherever it was, Oman, I think it was. You know, and he said they were so thirsty, they were hallucinating. They were losing their minds. Folks, cosmic childishness, secularism, nowism, is causing our society to lose their minds. Think of, just look at the news media over the next seven days with a Christian worldview. Just, just put on your lens, hold on to Christ as you read whatever news platform you read, and you will see as a society, we are losing our minds. The Bible calls the cares of this world, or it calls worries the cares of this world, yeah? That's what secularism is. Now, folks, the truth is we are all thirsty, but you have a choice to make. Where are you going to drink from? You can, you know, you can go to the toilet at home and drink from it, Expect a certain taste. McDonald's is a great... Whenever we go... Well, I don't think it's there anymore. I was disappointed. At Fleet's, at Fleet's uh, services, there used to be McDonald's. I used to love it. It's the only time I'd eat McDonald's. I had this kind of... Going up to the airport, McDonald's. I would love the moment, you know, just chewing on that real greasy bit of burger. It's just a wonderful moment in life. Only to be followed by an hour later or feeling very different. Because my body wasn't used to it. Folks, drinking from the pools of this world will satisfy, but only for a moment. Sooner or later, your stomach will start to churn. Your mind will start to grow weary. Are we thirsty? Yes, we are. But what are you drinking from? I will just say very three, things, three quick things in closing. If you want this type of water, this type of water renews and revives. The Holy Spirit will renew and revive you. By the Spirit of God, he quenches your, your utmost thirst. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is in your life this morning? Do you feel refreshed? Do you feel revived? Maybe he's there, but he's dormant. And that's why we're here this morning, to be refreshed and revived. Secondly, water cleanses. The Holy Spirit has a sensitive nose. Church, are we less profane than we used to be? Are we less profane than we were last week? Are we less childish than we were last week? Are we a church that is not afraid to have a culture of repentance and confession because we see each other through Christ? As a church, are we changing? Are we becoming more spiritually mature? Folks, water, this Holy Spirit cleanses, and that's a good thing. Thirdly, water flows. 
Are you a drain on other people's lives? Do they see you as the obnoxious Christian? Here, we come. Here comes Matthew Ashton again. Oh, he's not going to stop going on about Jesus. I can't believe it. Folks, a Christian is supposed to be simultaneously attractive and repelling. If no one's attracted to us as a church, then we're doing something wrong. We're just obnoxious. If no one's repelled by us, we're doing something wrong. We're just of the world. The water flowing in us and through us into others should be a fountain for others. When people are around you, do they feel sucked dry or do they feel enhanced? If I was to give you a set of keys this morning to your dream car, what would you do with those keys? If I was to give you some wings so you could fly and strap on, what would you do with the wings? If I was to give you tickets to a sporting final around the world, anywhere, all expenses paid, what would you do with those tickets? Folks, if Jesus is to offer us the living waters of life, what are we to do with that? Do you want it? Come and get it. Let's pray. Should we stand and pray? <laughs> Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that as we see through the window of our culture, as we anticipate colliding with it in the days, hours, weeks to come, as we see the world around us that's going to hate us in some regard for us wanting to bring about peace to the world, as we fearlessly love our neighbors, but we thank you that by you dying on a cross, being in the rock that was struck by the rod, taking the punishment that we should have taken. That you take on board our cosmic childishness and this morning you give us rivers of living water. Yeah. Lord, I thank you as we look through the window, we can hold on to something. The world we live in is not opaque. The world we live in is not completely see-through, but you've given us lenses by which we can put on and see you, Christ. And we hold on to you this morning. So Lord, I pray right now, we're going to ask it. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. For some of us, I feel the Holy Spirit wants to cause us to cry. There's going to be an overwhelm of emotions of crying because he's going to bring healing and revive. If that's you, Holy Spirit, would you come to that person this morning? Would you heal? with the expression of that healing be overwhelming tears with literally waters flow out of people's eyes this morning. I feel for others, some, some, some this morning are going to smile. There's a couple here that have smiled with their mouth but not with their eyes. It's a fake smile. You know how to discern a real smile. You look at the edge of a person's eyes and if it's not wrinkled, it's a fake smile. There's some here this morning, if that's you, God wants you, he's going to cause you to smile this morning and you haven't done so for a long time because you're going to be reminded that he has cleansed you and that in him you have forgiveness. There might be other expressions of it this morning, but if that's you, if tears and smiling, if that's you, through God's revival and renewing or through his cleansing, Holy Spirit, I pray you would pour out on those people 
Lord, we welcome you here. Amen.